and welcome back to your regularly scheduled Crimes and Witch Demeanors programming. I'm your host, Joshua Spellman. Last week, we took a small detour and discussed the Dual House, the site of one of my personal paranormal experiences, and switched up the format by meandering through a history with no clear direction. Some of you enjoyed it, some of you didn't, but I'm here to let you know at least this week we are back on track. However, this week we are still covering another haunted Victorian, a Queen Anne-style Victorian to be precise, but it has a much more unified and chilling history. But yet again, somehow this story circles back to me in a way. I Why? It's just really because the world is so small and we can, as humans, make such minute connections. I just know that the name of this house, this mansion, sounded really familiar to me and I couldn't place it. But I am excited about this story. It's, it's a little strange, uh, but the site itself is really interesting. This week, we are headed to the rural town of Boyds, Maryland to investigate the Winterbourne Mansion. Now, I am saying Winterbourne Mansion because that is what everyone says, and it sounds enchanting and like something from like a Neil Gaiman novel. But through my research, I have my suspicions that it is actually supposed to be pronounced Winderborn, even though that doesn't really quite roll off the tongue or make any phonetical sense whatsoever. But that is what I am going to be referring to it as. But you'll have to let me know what you think after listening to the episode. Is it Winterborn or Winderborn? Let me know on Instagram. So this legend is interesting. And I thought it had to be true since one of my sources was a government source, a government document. But spoiler, I don't think it is after I've dug a little bit deeper. This mansion has seen its fair share of tragedy and has been left abandoned for over a decade. It was on the real estate market for probably just as long, but it seems that it is no longer for sale. So its future is quite uncertain, as is its past. So join me now to learn the alleged history of our windy or windy mansion. Winderborn Mansion was built in 1884 at the behest of Enoch and Mary Totten. The Tottens lived in Washington, D.C., but wished for a summer home to escape the hustle, bustle, and stifling heat of the city. After a long search, the couple decided on a plot of land near Little Seneca Creek, where the B&O Railroad gently curved around the property on two sides. Access to this parcel of land was from Clopper Road, which the Tottens also purchased. Eventually, later down the road, the railroad expanded from a single track to a double track, and this expansion required that Clopper Road be cut off. Eventually, the Tottens and the B&O Railroad came to a compromise, each paying half of the cost for a bridge that went over the track, and the railroad agreed to maintain the bridge in perpetuity. Enoch Totten did well for himself in life, as he was a prominent lawyer in D.C. and was a Civil War veteran. He even managed to survive being shot four times at the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse. In fact, one of these shots may have been his own fault, as a projectile bounced off his saber and hit his right hand. Regardless of this strange mishap and his successful career as a lawyer, the capital for the construction of Winderborn Mansion 
came from his wife, Mary. Mary was the daughter of a Wisconsin senator named Timothy Howe, who was the cousin and heir to the massive fortune of Elias Howe, the inventor of the bobbin winder. It was from this device that the money for, and the name of, Winderborn Mansion came to be. Once construction was completed, Winderborn Mansion was painted a pale pink with a dark rose trim and shutters of a deep plum, a vibrant contrast to its current pallid, moss-covered facade. Winderborn's architecture is unique, sporting a triangular fireplace, a room suspended above the foyer, and hidden rain spouts that directed water to an underground cistern for drinking. The Tottens hosted elaborate formal affairs on their lawn, which was landscaped with rare and exotic plants imported from around the world. And while Winderborn acted as the Tottens' summer home, it was staffed all year long, with an expanded staff during their summer stays. In addition to the parties on their lawn, the Tottens also hosted extravagant dinner events. However, the food was never set upon the table, as they were quite wealthy, and instead, maids would carry around silver platters and bowls and serve those who were seated at the table. Sadly, this opulent life of the Tottens was soon struck by tragedy. The Tottens had three children who all contracted typhoid fever from contaminated drinking water on the property. Two of the children survived, both becoming partially deaf, while one of their sons died from the grisly disease. This tragedy soured the Tottens' love of Winderborn. However, they kept the property and it stayed in the family. One of the Totten daughters, Edith, inspired by her tragic childhood experience, became a physician, coming into ownership of the Winderborn property sometime before 1915. She never married, but she did adopt a daughter. This little girl loved Winderborn, exploring its every nook and cranny, running through its magical halls that never seemed to end. One of her favorite activities was to slide down the banister of the massive staircase that led to the foyer. One day, she was running down the hall, jumped on the banister, and began to slide down. However, unlike usual, she gained a little bit too much speed, lost control, and flew off, falling to her death. She, too, fell victim to Winderborn Mansion. The curved railroad track that ran around the home was eventually straightened, and the bridge that was supposed to have been maintained by the railroad company in perpetuity was demolished, leaving the Tottens with no access to their home. The Tottens took this case to court, and the home and surrounding property were sold off to the railroad. Not long after, Edith Totten suddenly dropped dead after giving a lecture at John Hopkins University at only 48 years of age. Was this Winderborn's revenge for them selling off the property? Winderborn Mansion belonged to the railroad for several years before being purchased by the Pickrell family in 1929. Edward and Beulah Pickrell raised their two sons, Edward Jr. and Paxton, on the property. Lucky for the Pickrell boys, they escaped the wrath of Winderborn Mansion, who seemed to have an appetite for taking young souls. Both Edward and Beulah passed away, leaving the property to Edward Jr. in their will. During Edward Jr.'s ownership, the house began to fall into disrepair, and he too died in 2004, leaving the responsibility of the quickly decaying property to his brother Paxton. Tried as he might, Paxton could never sell the home as it only began to decay faster and faster. To this very day, the house remains abandoned. Vines and the surrounding vegetation have completely engulfed the home 
blending in more and more with the Black Hills Regional Park that sits against the estate. Once elegantly groomed, Winderborn Mansion now appears like a map from a post-apocalyptic video game. Several old muscle cars are left abandoned in the yard. Furniture, clothes, books, and magazines are still left inside. While the house has decayed and succumbed to the elements, the ghosts of its past still roam the halls in opulence, ignorant to the passing of time and the erosion of their beloved estate. This story has befuddled me and completely turned my brain to mush. I've spent so much time trying to confirm certain parts of this story that it now just seems utterly impossible. I don't, I don't even know where to start. Um, let's see. So there are a number of articles on this house and its history, and after reading them, they all seem to refer back to one article from the Washington Post. Now, I dug a little bit deeper into the Washington Post article to see where they got their information from, and I hit the jackpot, or what I thought was the jackpot at the time. There is a 1978 report on the home's history available through Maryland's government website. I don't know where it comes from. It's literally just linked to a PDF. It doesn't seem like it's in a very secure place. Maryland government, you should probably figure that out but I got to it. It is an ACHS summary form that was prepared by a number of people, um, but I cannot really figure out what ACHS stands for, but I am assuming that it stands for something, something historical site or historical society. As I have been able to find a number of these other forms through Google, again, just the PDFs. I don't know where the collections they are from. They're just floating out there. Again, not secure. Maryland, fix that. But the form seemed quite legitimate. It is definitely a 1978 document, as it is all typewritten. I had no reason to doubt any of the information in it. It seemed to be fairly well-researched. There was a historian that prepared part of the form, though not the whole packet. It compiles the history of the home, and it seems to be a historical preservation thing, kind of arguing for why it's important. But this form seems to be where most of the information available on the internet about the Tottens stems from. So this includes them having three children, one of their sons dying of typhoid fever, Edith adopting a child, and all this other stuff. But after doing my own research, I found some rather conflicting information. So all these internet sources and this document say that Enoch and Mary Totten had three children and that they lost their son to typhoid fever after drinking contaminated water at Winderborn. Now, the historic report also details that the drinking water there was always boiled before ingestion and that the cisterns that the water came from were religiously cleaned. So that seems a little bit strange, but again, there's always room for area of bacteria and viruses. I'm not really sure how you get typhoid. It can, you know, slip through the cracks. So I didn't find that as strange as I found this next fact. The Tottens did not have three children. The Tottens had four children. Edith, Howe, Gerald, and Alice. 
even stranger, only one of their children died as a child, and it was not one of the sons who grew up to be rather prominent figures. Instead, their daughter Alice died at the age of 16. But even stranger than that, she died before the house was built. Alice Crosby Totten died at the age of 16 on October 6, 1881, according to the Washington, D.C.'s Evening Critic, and as well as her tombstone. Now, the legends say that they lost their son to typhoid fever as a child, but both of the Totten sons outlived both their parents and Edith by decades, and they both lived into their 70s. There's no evidence that they had another child. I looked at so many different census records. I looked at their family's tombstones and their death records and did not find another child. It seems that they had these four children, not three, and that one did die, but she died before the house was ever built. So it's kind of weird, right? And there's a little bit more weirdness. And I think we've, I, I think I figured out why this may have happened. But before that, I do want to talk about Edith Totten. So I did find a number of obituaries for Edith Totten, one of which I just found to be hilarious and it goes to show the stupidity of machine reading or of people. I haven't decided which is responsible for the error. If you follow me on Instagram, you've already seen it on my Instagram story, but some databases let you clip news stories for your own collections and they kind of become public and you can add and edit the information. So I found one clipping that someone had clipped or the computer had clipped, and it was the obituary for an Edith Tatia Sayamba. So this woman had siblings whose names were recorded accurately, that being of Gerald and Howe Totten. So how did her name become recorded as Edith Tatia Sayamba? This happened because the title must have been read improperly by OCR. The title of the obituary was Lecturer Dies, Dr. Edith Totten Succumbs at John Hopkins, which apparently Totten Succumbs became Tatia Siamba. Oh, geez. I was able to find this still because her brother's names were recorded properly and it picked up her, Edith, and their Totten, but I digress. Edith passed away after she completed a lecture on imagination and thought, dying of a cerebral hemorrhage in her office chair. So at least that part of the story does seem to be true. Now going on further about Edith, I was not able to find any real record of her adopted daughter, but it is still entirely possible that it happened. Edith seems to be a fascinating character. I I don't know much about her. There's not really much available on her other than her obituary and a couple mentions of her being a debutante in her youth. But Edith never did marry. She inherited Winderborn in 1915, and she became a doctor and professor at John Hopkins University. For a product of the Victorian age to remain single, become a doctor, and own your own mansion, that is really fascinating and impressive. If she adopted her own daughter to be a single mother during this time, that's even more impressive. And I wish we knew more. But there's not a lot on her, or the family for that matter. I was really surprised that there were no pre-existing family trees for the Totten family. So on websites like Ancestry, if you are searching through that database, sometimes you will find family trees compiled by other people, but this didn't exist. I I was flabbergasted, honestly, because she comes from a prominent family and they continued to be quite prominent after Winderborn. 
As I mentioned earlier, the name Winderborn or Winderborn or Winterborn sounded so familiar to me, and I couldn't figure out why. Is it because it sounds like something from a novel or a book? No. <laughs> I figured it out. It's because Howe Totten founded Winderborn Kennels, and he bred Great Danes. And you're probably like, why does that why does that make it familiar to you that this person owned a dog kennel? Well, if you don't know, for those of you who don't know my career, I used to be the librarian for the American Kennel Club, and a lot of my time was spent researching different breed histories, researching pedigrees, or what is effectively dog genealogy for various researchers and breeders, as well as digitizing and archiving old photograph and negative collections. And during my time there, I did spend a pretty good chunk of time researching Great Danes and their history. And yeah, Winderborn was a prominent kennel name that I came across quite often. They bred a lot of champion dogs. And if I'm not mistaken, I think we're one of the more foundational kennels for the breed as Winderborn kennels started in the early 1900s and the breed didn't become like a really big phenomena until I would probably say 1930s when dog showing itself really took off um, in the 40s and stuff after the Great Depression. But again, I digress. If you want to know more about dog stuff, let me know. I know too much about dog breeds and history for my own good and oftentimes to my own detriment. But also, disclaimer, I am not for purebred dogs, even though I worked for the fascist authority on blood purity. That is not my perspective at all. Trust me. So all of that, all that history aside, how did all this information about the family's three, I say that lightly, children and a son dying get so wrong? Again, it might not be wrong. But according to my documents and stuff, I have found no evidence for it. It's still a possibility. But again, they did not have three children. They had four. But then again, they did have three children at the time that they were at the mansion. Oh my god, I digress. So all these stories, I dig deeper into the historical report from the Maryland government. It seems that all the stories of the Totten family tragedies were not from written record of any kind, but were instead from a 1978 personal interview with an individual named Hershey Ayton. While I do love oral histories, and I think that they are incredibly important, especially for recording and preserving indigenous languages, folklore, and personal experiences, I don't think that they are great for accurately recording events that happened before your lifetime and to another family that was not yours. It's entirely possible that Aiton was some type of authority on the Totten family, and they had information that we're not privy to, but that cannot be known or confirmed at this point. Insofar as the documents that are available to me, since I cannot access a lot of paper records without visiting certain institutions in Maryland, it doesn't seem like Aiton's accounts of the family's life are wholly accurate. Ellis Totten surely died very young and tragically, but it was well before the home was built and, and she was not, to my knowledge, a son. So that part can remain a mystery I'm going to go with the hypothesis that it just never happened, and this is an urban legend of people just being confused. But I do want to talk about another part of the Totten family, and that is the fascinating facet of how Mary Totten 
got all of her money? Because Elias Howe was responsible for much more than the bobbin winder. Elias Howe was effectively the inventor of the modern sewing machine. Now, he's not the inventor per se, as there were other types of like prototypes before him, but he's the one that perfected it, creating three elements of the lock stitch sewing machine that are used still to this day and kind of are synonymous with sewing machines. He was awarded the very first patent for the device in 1846, and the three elements, the mechanisms of modern sewing machines that he is responsible for is a needle with the eye at the point instead of at the head of the needle, the automatic feed, and the shuttle beneath the fabric to form the lock stitch. Now, however, despite being awarded the patent, he could never find investors in the United States, and so him and his brother went to England, where they were able to sell a version of his machine, but there were some really shady business disputes, and he ended up not making any money and returned to the United States penniless. And upon his return to the United States, he found that there were many entrepreneurs that were selling and manufacturing sewing machines that used his patents but he got no credit and no money for it. Most famously, he became embroiled, or may I say embroidered, in a court case lasting from 1849 to 1854 with none other than Isaac Singer of Singer Sewing Machine fame. Now, Isaac Singer and Walter Hunt perfected a version of Elias Howe's sewing machine and were selling it with the exact same lock stitch that he had invented and patented. Thankfully, in the end, Howe won the lawsuit and gained a rather amazing deal in the process. He was able to collect royalties on all lockstitch sewing machines sold not only by Singer, but by a number of other manufacturers as well. This is how the Howe family became filthy, filthy rich. Now, Howe is responsible for other inventions as well, as we know, the bobbin winder, but also he patented the zipper, or as he called it, the automatic continuous clothing closure, which doesn't really quite have the same ring to it. However, Elias never really pursued this patent seriously and was never credited with its creation. So how did Mary Howe Totten receive this fortune, as she was not a direct heir? Well, Elias's first wife died, leaving him with no children, and Howe's brothers also died. And while Elias did remarry, he died at the age of 48 of a massive blood clot in 1867. Through a chain of events, Timothy Howe, who was Mary's father and Elias's cousin, became heir to the fortune, which was then eventually passed down to Mary herself. It's very convoluted, very confusing, and I could have researched it a little bit more, but it's not the focus of our story, and all that matters is that Mary got that money to build Winderborn. But it's still very interesting nonetheless, and the whole history around the sewing machine, to me at least, is really interesting, probably not to anyone else. I think it's because recently I've been into sewing again, because my sewing machine has been sitting in storage for a year, but I digress. I digress. Insofar as the ghosts of Winderborn Mansion, if there are any, you could technically go and visit for yourself. But I do not recommend it as it is illegal, at least physically speaking. Winderborn is still private property as Paxton Pickerel has been trying to sell it off since 2004. It was originally listed at $2 million in its rotting, decrepit state, 
was dropped to $1.5 million and then to $895,000 in 2016, but it never sold. It is very tragic, but it is undoubtedly beyond repair. But it is a very unique home, and in that document from Maryland, it was described as, quote, the only grand and elegant structure in the simple rural town of Boyd's, which is kind of just like this not-so-subtle burn to Boyd's. However, elegant and grand is no longer the adjectives you would use to describe Winderborn. The gardens are completely overgrown, with some of the rare vegetation from the Totten's original garden still existing and flourishing on the land. But many people do still come to the property quite regularly, trespassing. Again, trespassing, I might add, but they do come. But lucky for you, you don't have to risk getting arrested or sued or falling into a cistern because if you are interested, there are a lot of urban explorers, we'll call them, aka criminals, who have recorded their visits to Winderborn, and they are all on YouTube. I will let you know that some of their personalities are extremely grating, and others are quite enjoyable to watch, but you can explore the whole of the property through these videos. Some of these individuals come to explore Winderborn because it's creepy and ghostly and strange, but a rather large chunk of the people come to visit the abandoned muscle cars. I will never understand masculinity. I will never understand the obsession with vehicles, as they say it in Maryland. I just, I don't know. But sure, go look at those rotting cars. They must be some kind of rare, shiny car. Not shiny because it's decrepit, but shiny as in rare, in like the Pokemon sense, a holographic, if you will. But regardless of these people's motivations for visiting the property, it really does look so haunted. It's creepy as all get out. But I've not been able to locate a single ghost tale or sighting or encounter. It seems that the real horror of the home is its history or the urban legend that is said to be its history. It's just a creepy post-apocalyptic video game level. That's really what its draw is and why I think it has become this kind of haunted house figure for Maryland. Paxton Pickrell, who grew up in the house himself, said, quote, that place to me was just a wonderful home. And he was rather perturbed when he found out that the house, when it was up for sale, was published in an article as one of the spookiest, creepiest old houses for sale in America on a real estate website. So the house is dilapidated and the local government has actually bought up all the land that surrounds the house. There's only nine acres, which is Winderborn, remaining. And according to Pickroll, the county has been trying to take the nine acres of property for years now. And he's very defiant about selling it to the government and is trying to get it sold to someone who would maybe try and restore the home, even though it's beyond repair. But I do stand with Pickroll on this one. Stick it to the man, Pickroll. So while the property of Winderborn itself may not be haunted, what remains is a skeleton of the past. It was once a place of grandeur and wealth that now sits covered in vines looking more like the home of the Adams family or the set of a Scooby-Doo cartoon. Daring urban explorers frequent the site to catch a glimpse into the past, and I do recommend checking it out. I'll post some images of its current state on the podcast Instagram, at Crimes and Witch Demeanors. I'll put the link below, as usual. But I also recommend checking out some of the YouTube videos. It's really 
eerie how many objects have been left in the house. There's clothing still in the house, books, magazines. It's bizarre. But that is all for today's episode. Please, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell a friend or two and force them into listening by any means necessary. And leave a review if you're particularly cool. Uh, And until next time, don't slide down the banister. Adamantly defend your patents. And of course, stay curious and stay spooky. Bye. (laughs) 